open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. Uh, we, we started John chapter 1 last week. It's on page 941 if you have one of our uh, black Bibles. And uh, we're going to look at, at verses 19 through 51 this morning. We're going to finish up the, the, uh, the chapter today. So last week we looked at the prologue, okay, the first 18 verses. So, so if we think about those, they sort of serve as this glorious introduction to the reality of who Jesus is. It was this magnificent poetic, uh, poetic description of Christ in all of his glory and, and him revealing uh, the, the Father to us. And yet... Uh, it was, it, was, it was transcendent, right? It was one of these things where it was like, oh my goodness, this is incredible and, and I can't even fully take it all in, right? And so if that was the glorious introduction to the reality of who Jesus is, like John could have just ended the gospel right there, right? I mean, he laid it out for us, but, but we have 21 chapters here. We have a whole, a whole letter left to go through. And so if that's the glorious introduction to the reality of who Jesus is, then, then the rest of chapter 1 serves then as this gracious invitation for the readers of John's gospel to begin to see that reality then for themselves. John's like, here's what he, or, or here it is, here's the whole thing, here's who Jesus is, now let's go together and, and explore that and see that for ourselves, okay? So, so this, this second part of chapter 1 here, these verses, they're going to introduce a couple motifs, a couple design patterns that John uses throughout uh, his gospel. Um, these aren't the only two, but these are, these are the main two that show up in our section this morning. Some, some themes, some reoccurring uh, patterns that show up. Uh, and one of those, the motif is uh, of, of misunderstanding. Okay? We're going to see that all over in John's gospel. People not getting... Uh, what they need to get. And the other one is the motif of seeing. We're going to see, you know, maybe as you read through the, the gospel it, this next time around in the reading plan, every time you see the word see or look or behold or, or found or anything that, that involves visualizing something, circle that. I think you'll be amazed at how often it's, it's talked about. So this motif of misunderstanding you could also go along and, and if you're circling the word see, then you could, you could rectangle the word know, K-N-O-W, or understand or whatever. Motif of misunderstanding, motif of seeing. Both of these motifs will work together to help us realize that we don't know Jesus as well as we think we do. Okay? And in order for us to grasp who Jesus truly is, we need him to show us. We need him to show us. And so I want to pray, and, uh, and then we'll dig in to our passage together this morning. Father, thank you for giving us Christ, and along with him all things. We pray this morning that you would truly open our eyes, that we would not only see what's here, but, but perceive and understand all the glory that you've given to us in Jesus Christ that we would leave here this morning knowing our Savior better and also knowing that we need to continue to grow in our knowledge of him together. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, last week we saw John open his gospel with this, this poetic description of the incredible reality that Jesus is 
the fully God and fully human Son of God who is full of grace and truth and who came to fully reveal God the Father to the world. And so that, uh, so that all who believe in Jesus can become adopted children of God and have new and eternal life in him. Okay? That's a, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. It's incredible what he's telling us. This is a well-developed understanding of who Jesus is. But even though John begins his gospel about Jesus with this understanding, we need to remember that he didn't begin his relationship with Jesus with this understanding. John reached this conclusion after Jesus revealed himself fully to John and to the other disciples. In verse 14, if you remember from last week, John says, we observed his glory. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John and the other disciples observed Jesus' glory, and, and John invites now the readers of his gospel to do the same as he retells the ways in which Jesus revealed his glory to them. Now, Every one of us needs to know Jesus better than we currently do, right? I don't think anyone in this room could say, yeah, I got it. I got it figured out. Come talk to me, right? We all need to know Jesus better than we currently do, but we need to be careful not to say that because we don't have him fully understood that we can't understand, that we can't understand who he is. Every one of us, yes, needs to know Jesus better than we currently do, and yet the Bible reveals enough about him for us to be absolutely confident in who he is along the way. As we grow to know more about who he is, we just grow more and more confident that that is, in fact, who he is. Okay? That's why we have the scriptures. That's why we have John's gospel. That's why we have the other gospels. That's why we have the whole New Testament and the Old Testament, because the Old Testament points us to Jesus, paints the picture of him, and then the New Testament says, this is the guy. This is who it is, right? And so it can be intimidating for us when we think, man, I mean, I've been following Jesus for 20-some years, but I feel like I'm just now plumbing the depths. How am I ever going to share him with someone else if I need to know more, right? But the beauty is, listen, if we waited until we, we, we knew it all, until we figured it all out to tell others, we'd never tell anybody else. We'd just lock ourselves in a room and, and study, 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 or whatever, right? Or just give up, because it's like, we'll never exhaust our knowledge of Jesus. We'll never exhaust the wonder and the glory of who he is. There's always more for us to learn and understand. But here's the thing that I think we'll see in our passage this morning, and I hope it's an encouragement to us, both an encouragement and, and a call for us to do something, okay? Is, it's this, that we should invite others to see for themselves who Jesus truly is, even as we continue to grow in our own understanding of, true, of who he truly is. Why? Because we don't have to, um, we don't have to, to have the fullness of who Jesus is to give that to someone away. They're not coming to us. They're coming to him. So let's point them to him, okay? We need to invite others to see for themselves who Jesus truly is, even as we continue to grow in our own understanding of who he truly is. So let's, let's dig in. John chapter 1, verse 19. 
through 21. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? Who are you? He didn't deny it, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Well, are you the prophet? No, he answered. Don't you love his short answers? Back in verses 6 through 8, John the gospel writer set us up for this part about John the Baptist, when he said, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Here in verse 19, he says, this was John's testimony. Okay? He introduced us to him last time, and now he's laying it out for us. The Jews in the first, in first century Palestine, they were on high alert for the appearing of the Messiah that God had promised to, to send them. And so when John the Baptist showed up and gained, gained uh, some prominence, started making some public noise, he, they sent some priests and some Levites to conduct a background check of sorts uh, to, to find out what he was up to. The first question they asked him in verse 19 sounds kind of generic on the surface. Who are you? But the implied question is, hey, are you the guy we've been waiting for? Are you him? That's why John emphatically in the next verse says, no way, I am not the Messiah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say it outright for you. So they said, all right, if you're not the Messiah, then how about Elijah? Now, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who never died, but he was carried up to heaven in a whirlwind, and he was expected to return in the last days as a precursor to the Messiah. So, so like, these guys would settle for Elijah, right? Because they knew then that the Messiah was coming after, and John said, no, I'm not Elijah either. Now, we know, if you've read the other Gospels, Jesus says John actually is Elijah. Not literally, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and their hearts of the children to their fathers. Jesus says, yeah, John is actually Elijah, but John doesn't even realize that yet. John doesn't even know this yet. So I'm not Elijah. Don't give me that credit, right? So they say, all right. You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. Well, how about the prophet? Capital P, prophet. Back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses predicted that the Lord would send another prophet like him to, uh, to whom the, the people must listen because the Lord would put his words in the prophet's mouth. And the prophet would tell the people everything that God had commanded him to say. We'll actually hear Jesus say those words later in John's gospel. The Father has given me this to say. Jesus is the, the, the true prophet with a capital P. But John says, I'm not the prophet either. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Can you just hear him sort of getting annoyed? He just denied that he was any of these three long-awaited end-time figures. But the priests and the Levites, they couldn't just go back to the Jews who had sent them from Jerusalem and say, hey, listen, we still don't know who he is, but we know who he's not. Okay? That's what we got. They're not going to go back there until they get an answer. And so rather than continue guessing, they just, they just cut to the chase. Look at verse 22. Who are you then? They asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? 
He said, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. When these priests and Levites asked him to explain himself, John the Baptist quoted Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. In the first part of Isaiah 40, God told the prophet Isaiah to comfort his people. They've been in, in exile in Babylon for a long time, and he told them, hey, I'm going to deliver them. Tell them about my promise to deliver them and tell them to get ready. Tell them to get ready for my arrival. And so by quoting this passage to the priests and the Levites, John the Baptist was essentially saying, listen, I'm not the Messiah, but I have come to get the people ready for him. That is why I'm here. Verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. Look at verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, um, you probably heard of the Pharisees. Maybe, maybe you've just heard them by name. But Pharisees were a small but influential group of Jews who were really concerned with the authority of, uh, of the law and a strict adherence to it. In fact, a strict adherence to their interpretation of it is what, what became their downfall. And so when the priests and the Levites that they sent asked John why he baptized people, they weren't asking, hey, what's your reason? They were asking, what gives you the right? What gives you the right? Baptism wasn't uncommon in those days, but it was predominantly Gentiles who converted to Judaism who were baptized, and they would often baptize themselves as, a, as the sign of that. But John was baptizing other people, and he wasn't just baptizing Gentiles, he was also baptizing Jews. So these guys were like, what is happening here? And he was doing it in preparation for the coming kingdom of God. And since he denied being the Messiah, or Elijah, or the prophet with a capital P, the priests and the Levites wanted to know where his authority to baptize was coming from. So the question wasn't, why do you baptize? The question was, why do you baptize? baptize. In verses 26 and 27, he essentially told them, listen, you're wasting your time on me. I don't matter. I'm not the guy. There's someone that you need to know who is a way more important than I am, and he's far, he has far greater authority than I do. Stop wasting your time with me. In those days, it was a slave's job to untie and remove his master's sandals and to emphasize just how insignificant he was compared to the one coming after him. John the Baptist said, listen, I'm not even worthy to touch this man's dirty feet. That's the guy you need to pay attention to. Now, we might expect a few follow-up questions from the priests and the Levites like, all right, who is this guy? Who is this one coming after you? Where can we find him? We need to ask him these questions now, right? But, the, but John, the gospel writer, doesn't tell us how the rest of the conversation went. He seems just as eager as John the Baptist was to shift the focus off of John and on to Christ. And so we move on. Look at verse 
29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Both John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer make it clear that Jesus is the one that everybody needs to know. He's the guy. Undeniably, he is the guy. Twice, John the Baptist said, I don't know him. Now, he probably didn't mean that literally. His mother and Jesus' mother were relatives, right? They probably did some family things together. He's probably at least familiar. Jesus wasn't necessarily a stranger to John, but John understood that one of the main reasons that God had sent him to baptize was so that he could see for himself that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah and so that he could make that known to everyone else. Think back with me to verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Yes, his baptism was a baptism of repentance where he called people to prepare their hearts in faith that God would would send the Messiah to get ready for the coming of the Lord. And yet, we're told here that God sent him to baptize. John says it. I came baptizing with water so I could find out who this Messiah is because God made it known. God identified him. John the Baptist identified Jesus by two different names here, the Lamb of God and the Son of God. And although at first glance it may seem like John the Baptist was the one that was conveying the deeper meaning of these names, it's more likely that John the Gospel writer is letting his readers in on something that even John the Baptist had yet to fully understand. In verse 29, John the Baptist called out those words that have become so familiar to so many of us, right? Look, behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. Now we read that and we immediately tie it to Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And we wouldn't be wrong to do that because that, that's ultimately what it reveals. But it's likely that John the Baptist was thinking of a different kind of lamb. There were some, some Jewish texts floating around, circulating in his day that spoke of an apocalyptic warrior Lamb. John himself, the, the gospel writer, picks up on this theme in the book of Revelation, the lamb that, that's coming, okay? The lamb who was slaughtered but who's coming like a warrior. This, the, the, these texts were speaking of a lamb who was coming as a judge against unrepentant sinners. In Matthew chapter 3, Matthew records a confrontation that John the Baptist had with some Pharisees and some Sadducees who came uh, to him while he was baptizing people, and John the Baptist had some really strong words for them, okay? Listen to what he says. He called them a a brood of vipers, and he warned them that if they didn't truly repent, they would be cut off from the people of God like chaff from wheat. Matthew 3, 11 and 12, John told them, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I, 
Similar language that, to the one he's using here in, in John's gospel. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals, he says. We've heard this too. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Now that sounds more like a warrior lamb than a sacrificial lamb to me. Both Matthew and Luke also record in their Gospels a time when John the Baptist was in prison and heard about the things that Jesus was doing. And when they weren't lining up with his picture of what what Jesus should be doing by now, he sent his disciples out and asked this question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, how can we go from John being so confident right here in, John the Baptist being so confident right here in John's gospel to then seeing him later in the other gospels going, maybe I got it wrong. Unless the lamb he was expecting was a different lamb. Here in verse 29. When John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Greek verb translated as takes away, which in our minds we, we picture as the sacrificial covering, right? The Greek verb there has a sense of removing rather than atoning for. It would more readily fit with a picture of clearing the chaff from the threshing floor than it would with covering transgressions on a sacrificial altar. He's cleaning house. But when we consider that John the Gospel writer wrote this after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus was resurrected, and later in his gospel, even as Jesus is hanging on the cross, John the Gospel writer depicts him as the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Then we can see that John, even as he allows John the Baptist to say what he was thinking, John, the gospel writer, helps us go, this is what it really means. This is, the fuller, this is the fuller understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he didn't do that by forcefully removing sinners. He did it by forfeiting his own life in their place. This is what John, the gospel writer, wants to help us see. The phrase, the Son of God, in verse 34 has a deeper meaning as well. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would often come upon people and empower them to fulfill a special role or a purpose that God had for them, but the Spirit did not always remain on them. Here, John the Baptist said that he saw the Holy Spirit not only descend upon Jesus, but also rest upon him. That, in the Greek, that word rest means to remain, to stay. We're going to see that word again In John chapter 15, when Jesus says, remain in me, stay, rest in me. In Isaiah 11, God promised that his spirit would come to rest on the coming king from the line of David. In Isaiah 42, God promised to put his spirit on his chosen one in whom he delights, the coming servant, capital S, who would bring justice to the nations. And in Isaiah 61, the coming Messiah is depicted as a prophet, capital P, upon whom God's spirit would rest because the Lord has anointed him to bring good news to the poor, to set the captives free, right? And so on and so forth. 
The Old Testament also anticipates a time of redemption when the Messiah would come and God then would pour out his spirit on all his people. It's part of the new covenant promise that God made. So when God, when the God who sent John to baptize with water told him, the one that you see the spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, all of this Messiah imagery comes flooding into John the Baptist's mind. It's no wonder that his response was, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. In the Old Testament, God refers to the coming Messiah King from the line of David as his son. He calls Israel his son, but he calls this Messiah King his son. And there's no indication here that John the Baptist knew that John the Gospel writer, what what he has already laid out for us in the prologue, that Jesus is the one and only Son, that he is God the Son, himself God. When we think Son of God, we have that layer. We've already started with that because John the Gospel writer has given us that. John the Baptist says he's the Son of God and he's, he's thinking Messiah. So he starts off, John the Gospel writer, he starts off his gospel in the prologue with his well-developed conclusions about who Christ really is as if to tell the reader, hey, this is where we're going And then he fills in the rest of his gospel with accounts like this one, as if to tell the reader, this is how we're going to get there. So come along, okay? And in these last two stories in chapter one, John the gospel writer invites his readers to begin this journey of following Jesus along with the first disciples, which includes John himself. Look at verse 35. The next day, John the Baptist was standing with his two of his disciples when, they, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, and you will see, he replied. And so they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Once again, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God, and it was enough to convince two of his own disciples to stop following him and to start following Jesus. Now, it's clear from the other places in John's gospel and in the other three gospels that when Jesus began to talk about his sacrificial death, none of his disciples understood it. In fact, one of them, Peter, rebuked him for it and said, you're wrong. You're not going to die. That's absurd, right? These two disciples of John the Baptist would not have left him to follow Jesus unless they were convinced that this Lamb of God was the warrior king Messiah that they've been waiting for. Wait, hold on, this guy's going to die? We'll stick with John the Baptist. And this is where the motif of seeing starts to take shape. When Jesus turned and he, and he noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? These are Jesus' first recorded words in John's gospel. And while on the one hand, Jesus is asking a simple question to the two disciples who were walking behind him, on the other hand, his words pose a much deeper question for the readers of John's gospel to ponder. It's as if we've been quietly following along, like keeping our distance from the scene, but watching from behind. And Jesus looks past these two disciples at us and says, hey, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? 
the two disciples called Jesus rabbi, which is an Aramaic term that John translates for his Greek-speaking readers. It means teacher. Traditionally, students of, Jewish, uh, of a Jewish rabbi would literally walk behind him. They would mimic his gait, his style of walking. They would do everything to become like him, and they would also learn to imitate his way of life. By calling Jesus rabbi and asking him where he was staying, these two disciples of John the Baptist were asking if they could become disciples of Jesus. It was more than just, hey, did you find a place to sleep tonight? They want to follow him. They want to see what he's about. They want to learn from him. Again, on the surface level, Jesus' answer in verse 39 was this invitation for the two disciples to come and see where he was staying. But as the true light who gives light and life to everyone, as John said in his prologue, Jesus' invitation was for them to see much more than the place where he was staying for the night. It was for them to see how the word became flesh and dwelt among them. John uses Jesus' words to extend that invitation to the readers of his gospel as well. If Jesus looks past these two disciples at us and says, hey, what are you looking for? And we think of that answer in our minds. Then he says, come and you'll see. Come and you'll see. Andrew is only mentioned three times in John's gospel. But um, I need to mention him first. So let's read verses 40 and 40, through 42 first. Getting ahead of myself. I got excited about that last part. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and he told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now I can tell you that Andrew has been mentioned only three times in John's gospel. And every time that he's mentioned, he is bringing someone to Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Oh, how I wish that could be said about me. Three times, and he's already far elapsed my own grasp on bringing others to Christ. Every time. Simon Peter may have been the, the more prominent brother in the early church. In fact, Andrew is, is introduced into this as Simon Peter's brother because by the time John wrote the gospel, everybody knew who Peter was. But Andrew's role here was no less significant. He brought Simon to Jesus, right? Listen, it's never insignificant when we bring others to Christ and tell them about him. No matter how, how poor of a job we stumble over our words, no matter how, how, if we get things backwards or forwards, listen, God's spirit, his word, his, his power, his love for that person is greater than our love for that person. It's never insignificant when we bring others to Christ and tell them about him. It's a vital role that we all have as disciples of Jesus. God has graciously put people in our lives that need Jesus, and he's graciously put us in their lives so that we might beckon them to come to him. May God also graciously grant us the eagerness that Andrew had to do exactly that. Andrew told Peter, hey, we found the Messiah. Now, we've heard this word already. John said it, but right here, John the, the gospel, John the Baptist said it earlier, but John uh, uh, the gospel writer uh, translates it for us. Messiah is the Hebrew term that John 
translates for his Greek-speaking readers as the Christ. Both terms literally mean anointed one, okay? We say Jesus Christ like Christ is his last name. It's a title, Jesus the Anointed One, the Messiah. John the Baptist denied being the Messiah back in verse 20. In the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, and the kings were all anointed ones, chosen people by God to lead and teach and deliver and care for God's people. King David was a Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah. God promised that the the Messiah would come from David's line, and like the other Jews in their day, Andrew and Peter were on high alert for the arrival of this anointed one that God has promised them uh, to send them. And so Andrew's like, hey, we found him. When the two of them came to Jesus, instead of identifying himself, what did Jesus do? He gave Simon a new name. He said, you're Simon, son of John, son of Jonah, your, your Bible might say. But you will be called Cephas. Cephas is an Aramaic word. Uh, and then John says, this means Peter. Peter, Petros is the Greek word. Both of those mean rock. In the Old Testament, God often changed people's names to indicate their special calling from a relation and their relationship with God. We saw it back in Genesis, right? When God called, uh, changed Abram's name to Abraham, when he changed Jacob's name to, to Israel. John is giving his readers a hint at what's to come for, for Simon Peter, but he doesn't elaborate on it. He just leaves it hanging right there. Why? Because the focus here is less on the one whose name is being changed and more on the one who's changing the name. It's a cue for the readers to see that the Messiah that Andrew and the other disciples found is is none other than God himself, the name changer. Again, pointing to a deeper understanding than even Andrew or Peter realized in that moment. And they wouldn't be the only disciples who had more to learn. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Jesus' words in verse 43 not only invited Philip to go with him to Galilee, follow me, those were his words, but, but they also invited uh, uh, Philip to become his disciple. And once again, Jesus' words seem to extend past his, his conversation with Philip to the readers of the gospel. Notice the pattern. Notice the, 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 the things that Jesus has been saying. What are you looking for? Come and you'll see. Follow me. Follow me. When we follow Jesus, we find what we're looking for because he'll show us what it is that we truly need. And we'll see that what we need is not primarily a what, but a who. It's him, Jesus himself. Like Andrew, Philip also went and found someone and told him about Jesus. He told Nathaniel, hey, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets. The law and the prophets was another way of referring to the entire Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament. Okay? saying everything in there is pointing to this guy right here. Philip was essentially saying the same thing that Andrew told Peter. We found the Messiah, right? But the way he said it's helpful for us because it reminds us that their understanding of who the Messiah was came directly from the scriptures themselves and not from their own self-concocted ideas. Yes, they didn't fully understand 
all that the Scriptures were pointing to, but they were still rooting their understanding in the Scriptures. And they still trusted what the Scriptures said was true because they understood that the God who promised to give them the Messiah was also the God who gave them the Scriptures. So when we lead others to Jesus, listen, we don't have to come up with some self-concocted idea. Aren't you glad? We don't have to make something up to, to try to fit their framework of who he is. When we lead people to Jesus, we need to lead them to the Scriptures, to what the Bible has to say about him, because we can't know Jesus and who he really is apart from what the Bible says. We may not fully understand it all, but we ought to fully trust it all because the God who gave us Jesus as the living word, like we saw in the prologue, is also the God who gave us the Bible as the written word. Nathaniel's a little skeptical, though, when he heard Philip's conclusion, right? The one that, that Moses and the prophets wrote about is this man from where? From Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, we'll learn later in John's gospel that Nathanael was from Cana. Cana and Nazareth were both in the region of Galilee, similar to the way Mononk and Eureka are in Woodford County. I may have picked those two towns on purpose. We understand small-town rivalry, don't we? I'm sure that none of you have ever said, can anything good come from Eureka? And I'm sure that nobody from Eureka has ever said the same thing about Mononk especially when it comes to football. Nazareth was a small town, no bigger than Mononk. But, but we need to understand something here. I think we read into this a little too much, that, that Nathaniel's comment was probably more one of confusion than it was of condescension. Yes, there was some small town rivalry, but, but Philip had just told him that they found the one that the scriptures pointed to. But Nathaniel read those scriptures too. And he may have been thinking about Micah's prophecy that said that, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And so his comment in verse 46 could essentially say, listen, Nazareth is the last place I would expect the Messiah to come from, right, for multiple reasons. But one of those being this, it says that he's coming from Bethlehem. So how can this Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth, be the Messiah? His definition of what is good is the Messiah, right? He's coming. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Little did Nathaniel know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and yet because Jesus was raised in Nazareth, that's the town that he's associated with. Philip's three-word reply in verse 46 was a way of saying, if you're skeptical, come and find out for yourself. Come and see. Come and see. You don't believe me? Come on. It's a similar phrase that Jesus said in verse 39. And again, John the Gospel writer seems to use it to direct his readers to join Nathaniel. Like, hey, Nathaniel's going, let's go with him. Let's go find out. Investigate these things for ourselves. Knowing that if they do that, if we do that, then we will see that Jesus ultimately came neither from Nazareth nor from Bethlehem, but from heaven. From heaven. Look at verse 47. And then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael may have been skeptical, but he was willing. He was willing to come and see, right? He showed up. 
And so he wanted to know for himself whether or not Philip's claim about Jesus was true. But when he came to Jesus, it was Jesus then who made a claim about Nathanael. Jesus wasn't calling him sinless when he says, there's no deceit in you. He's not saying, look, here's a perfect guy. But he was noting Nathanael's integrity as a follower of God, someone who read the scriptures, someone who was eagerly anticipating the Messiah, and as a descendant of Jacob. You remember what Jacob was characterized for? for a good part of his life in the book of Genesis? Deceit, right? Here is truly is an Israelite. Here it truly is a Jacobite in whom there is no deceit. This is a man of integrity. We also saw how many of Jacob's sons and their descendants were known for their deceptive ways. But Nathaniel was a man who came to Jesus with no other motive than to know the truth about who Jesus was. But as he approached Jesus, he was caught off guard by Jesus' spot-on assessment about him. Here's truly an Israelite in who there's no deceit. Look at verse 48. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Clearly, wherever the fig tree was that Nathanael was sitting under, it was far enough away that there was no way that Jesus could have physically seen him sitting under it. Jesus' sight was supernatural, and Nathanael picked up on that. His answer to Nathanael's question removed any doubt that Nathanael had left. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Rabbi, right? I'm following you now. That's what he's saying. King of Israel is yet another term that refers to the Messiah. And like John the Baptist, Nathanael also called Jesus the Son of God, but like John the Baptist, Nathanael had yet to see the deeper meaning of his own words. But the Messiah himself, the one who everybody is talking about, he would be the one to show them. Look at the last couple of verses, 15 51. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus told Nathaniel, listen, hey, you think the fig tree thing was a big deal? That's nothing. That's nothing compared to what I'm going to show you. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 2 and the first sign that John records where Jesus turns water into wine. You know where that takes place? In Nathaniel's hometown, Cana. But Nathaniel isn't the only one who would see greater things than Jesus' ability to see him under the fig tree when Jesus says, you will see, in verse 51, the you there is plural. Jesus was telling all his disciples that they would see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, it's looking past them as well for us. It's a call. Hey, you, all of you, if you investigate this, you will see. That, that picture, that image that he gave, the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's a callback to Genesis 28. If you remember, when Jacob encountered God in a dream and he saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder that extended between earth and heaven, God revealed himself to Jacob there, and Jacob named the place, the, the place Bethel, which means house of God. When Jacob awoke from the dream, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I didn't understand it. I didn't see it. By alluding to Jacob's encounter with God, Jesus is telling his disciples, 
you will know that the Lord is here. I love that. I will show you. I will show you. Jesus is the greater ladder that would give his true people or his people true and permanent access to God. He's the greater Bethel, the true house of God where God would meet with his people because he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among them. Several different people have assigned several different titles to Jesus in this passage. Lamb of God, Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, Son of Joseph from Nazareth, and King of Israel. And here in verse 51, Jesus gave a title to himself. Then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In the entire New Testament, nobody else is given this title except for Jesus. And almost every single time it's mentioned, it's Jesus is the one who's mentioning it, calling himself that. On the one hand, the title carries some ambiguity. Son of man is a category. It means, it means human. On the other hand, it's also a title given to a messianic figure that's both divine and human, whom Daniel saw in a vision, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming in the cloud, with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people and nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. What a picture. By calling himself the Son of Man in conjunction with the allusion to Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel, Jesus was confirming what John the Baptist and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel had all concluded, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. But their understanding of what it meant for him to be the Messiah was much different than his own understanding. And over the course of his gospel, John will develop all of these titles given to Jesus, and he'll help his readers understand their fuller meaning alongside of Jesus' disciples. Remember, as one of Jesus' disciples, John's own understanding of who Jesus is is shaped by Jesus himself as John followed him. The same is true for us. As followers of Christ, we call Jesus Savior and Lord, but we grow in our understanding of what that means for him to be those things as we continue to follow him. We all have more to learn, and in his grace, he's given us his word, the scriptures. He's given us his spirit to dwell in us. He's given us his church, the people of God, to help us grow in the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. And even as we continue to grow together in that knowledge ourselves, God has graciously called us to go out and bring others to Jesus. To tell them the good news about the Messiah who came not as a warrior king, but as a sacrificial lamb who took away the sins of the world by taking our sin upon himself and dying under the righteous wrath of God in our place on the cross. Listen, tell them that the, this Christ, this Messiah, rose from the dead on the third day to show that the Father accepted his payment in full to destroy the power of sin and death and to give eternal life to everyone who puts his or her trust in the risen Lord. Tell them that because his payment is enough to cover the full debt of their sin, then they don't have to pay for it themselves if they rely on him instead. 
Tell them that the Son of God came from heaven and lived as the son of Joseph from Nazareth so that through his life and his death and his resurrection, he could pour out his spirit on all who believe in him no matter where they're from. Tell them that the king of Israel must be the king of their hearts because he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people and nation and language should serve him. Tell them to give their allegiance to the Son of Man because his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Tell them to come and see Jesus and to come and see him for who he truly is so that they might believe. Every one of us is looking for something in this life. Hope, joy, peace, comfort, help, satisfaction, security, safety, love, excitement, acceptance, escape, approval, influence. The list goes on and on and on, right? Before you wear yourself out looking, why not stop and do some listening? Listen to Jesus' question. What are you looking for? Listen to Jesus' invitation. Come, and you will see. Listen to Jesus' command. Follow me. And listen to Jesus' promise. You will see greater things than this. None of us knows Jesus as well as we think we do. And in order for us to grasp who Jesus truly is, we need him to show us. But we shouldn't wait to bring others to him until we have it all figured out. We should invite others to see for themselves who Jesus truly is, even as we continue to grow in our own understanding of who he truly is. Only Jesus can truly open our eyes and give us the understanding that we need. And so let's turn our eyes and look to him together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the realities that you have laid forth before us in your word that we get to see men who think they know Jesus and realize that they, they, they know very little. And we can relate to them both in the conviction that we need to know more, but also in the comfort that Christ will show us all that we need. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow us in our knowledge of you, not so that we can be puffed up by knowledge, but so that we can be built up in love, love for our Savior and for one another, and that we would make him known even as we are coming to know him. We pray this in his name, amen.